arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. A friend gave this to me. It's Albanian. You mind translating it? <laughs> Good luck. Good luck. Good luck. Good luck. Good luck. You don't remember me. We spoke on the phone two days ago. That was Liam Neeson from Taken, a Pierre Morel film from 2008. You know how I'd like to do that, and I'd like to do it in two days. Look somebody square in the eye, come out of nowhere and say, I told you I'd find you. Back to the Green Haze episode. Roy Garrison is a transformed man, as Neeson was in Taken. Garrison has been taken from a hard-nosed reporter whose investigation has led to the deaths of many people close to him, including Sam and Nina Peters. The genius Grafton, now possibly in a checkmated situation, a situation he has never been in during his long career. The action picks up here as it should as we careen toward the dramatic finale of Green Haze by Robert P. Fitton. Green Haze, Chapter 37. Garrison did not know exactly why Keaton had brought them back east. A plainclothes contingent met them at a small New Jersey airport and drove a wide cube truck directly to a New York City apartment. The St. Augustine photos were transmitted on some type of machine that Garrison did not understand, and Keaton spoke continuously on the bedroom phone. Their attention was on the news reports from the square black wall monitor. Rebel forces now controlled Pangaea, and a new president was sworn in. Keaton learned an extraordinary amount of information during the flight back east. Grafton, still in Pangaea, probably in Agos, according to sources, had not directly issued the orders resulting in Richard's death or the death in Sam's old friend. But he may have sanctioned his subordinates to take action. Those subordinates now suspected Keaton had Garrison and the Peters in custody. Sam spoke as he looked at the set. What the hell are they worrying about in Pangaea anyways? Oil! said Garrison. He watched the commentators bantering and speculating about the small country's future. They'll show the oil fields again, power and money, Sam, and we got in the way. Sam nodded. Nina leaned forward and thought before she turned to Garrison. There has to be a connection to what you said about the VED, Roy. That VED's been driving me nuts for two and a half weeks. I guess you could use VED in a battle. Oh, no reports of that, said Sam. Nope. An old tape of smoke rising from a rocket attack on a housing complex outside of Agos appeared on the TV. 
Ambulances pushed through the troop-guarded roads, but a microwave transmission faltered, producing a series of disjointed lines across the screen before switching back to the studio. Maybe VED is the ultimate weapon here if they're pushed against the wall. Sam shook his head and Garrison heard what he thought was a disgusted laugh. Oh, so this president who controlled the oil fields is dead. Garrison nodded as the live feed came back on screen. It was a much quieter, normal city day in Agos. From what I've read, Mbutu is raking in extra cash on tariffs, but the oil flows and it's charged out down the line. Garrison turned as Keaton emerged from the bedroom. I'm having those people on the bridge with Grafton checked out and we may have something soon. Once this breaks open, Bruce, do we let it out? Listen, we can't let this out. Real nifty, said Garrison. What are we supposed to do, Bruce? Keaton sat on the sofa edge. Well, I look at it in two ways. We have the bold way and we have the smart way. We may be faced into the bold way. I don't know. Sam leaned back and crossed his legs on the coffee table. Well, what's the smart way? A new life, a new identity? I want the high risk, said Garrison. He walked over and stood before his friend. Tell me. We blackmail Grafton. Sam moved his hands like windshield wipers. Well, that's stupid. We're just regular people. I don't think we have enough to blackmail him, do we? Garrison interjected. Keaton shrugged his shoulders but didn't answer. Bruce, do your people know you have us? Roy, if I were you, I would just trust in what I'm saying and leave it at that. Around five o'clock, some food was brought in and set on the counter around the table. Garrison pinched the french fries and roast beef sandwich out of the bag as Keaton appeared in the rear room doorway. I have something. On rye or wheat, asked Garrison. Keaton smiled. One of the guys in the picture. Garrison let the wrapped sandwich fall to the table and he stood with the Peters. They all scrambled as if they were playing musical chairs. Keaton looked Garrison in the eye. Shouldn't come as any surprise. Come on, Bruce, what the hell have you got? The curly, blonde-haired man is William Schultz. Who is William Schultz? asked Sam. Keaton squinted. CEO. Prescott Pharmaceuticals. The drug. Garrison peered at the photo. Of course. Campbell's were on the right track, Roy. They knew the antidote to the VED. But not who made it. I should have got that. Maybe. One of his men handed him a thick printout. The antidote drug here is very important. Very important. And I think we're onto something here. But that's not what's interesting. Prescott is only one of the shadow companies, a dummy corporation, if you will. Who set that up? My information is that it's being used by a number of agencies, including Defense Security. Now that's significant, said Sam. They make the drug to combat the VED. And they grow the VED, Garrison erupted. Then they're the ones who are responsible for transporting the vials. Correct. From their Bakersfield plant. Then they called in the military to clean it up. Keaton shrugged his shoulders. That is likely, but not proven. What concerns me are those outbreaks you tracked, Roy, where they've infected the populace. They had stores of the antidote ready to go. 
Why? asked Nina. Money! They made millions on those outbreaks. Garrison's anger grew. He thought about Richard again, as well as the people who had died in the outbreaks. I knew it. Dead people for money. It's looking that way. Can you tie Grafton into this? asked Garrison. Keaton pressed his lips together and shook his head. Hell no, Grafton would never allow himself to be tied into this. No way. Any connection to the agency would only be speculation. Damn it. Garrison banged his fist on the table, shaking the french fries in Sam's soup. Just infect innocent people with a deadly plague and let the profits roll in? Unbelievable. Those profits were probably laundered through a number of people. We have to face the possibility, and I know you don't want to hear this, but we may not be able to decipher this. Bullshit. Roy, these people aren't stupid. They don't lay out scenarios so you can figure them out. Everybody makes mistakes. Grafton was close to that Prescott plant. Walking on that bridge was a major mistake. That overturned van was a mistake. If we don't have definitive facts, then we're just going to have to speculate. Roy, you don't understand the realm I'm operating in. We're talking about these bastards funding a death machine for profit. I'll bet money, Bruce, as soon as you have something concrete, they'll pull you off this. Keaton said nothing and returned to the phone. Garrison called across the room. Then what happens to us? Sam crossed his arm. That's a damn good point. What does happen to us if they take him off this? Garrison was on the verge of grilling him, but he knew it would do no good. Grafton, like his agency, had covered himself and had virtually no accountability. Green Haze, Chapter 38 Mangola assumed power immediately after Mbutu's murder, but was officially sworn into office on the presidential mansion's southern portico three days later. Grafton did not attend, despite the pressure from Manville. He preferred his hotel room, away from Seville. Updated reports, text to his computer, verified Chung's long-established links to the Chinese government, specifically Lao Hua, a high-ranking economic minister. What concerned Grafton most was Hua's attachments to Incremental Oil, a small Indonesian company. Grafton was now not sure whether he was dealing with the Chinese at all, but with two million in hand and 23 million, safely in German accounts. It was of little consequence. Being tucked away on the isolated Aegean island of Galapos would come soon enough. The land was already purchased by proxy, using established identities that could not be traced. Escape from Pangaea would be on a private freighter, bringing him to Italy. Train passage would take him north to Switzerland, where he would electronically transfer the account money into 16 separate accounts around the globe. He would cross the border by train again, drive along the Italian shore, and sail by fishing boat. Four days later, in the early morning hours near Galapos, he would take a small dinghy ashore and begin his new life as Constantine Arianus. To satisfy Chun and gain control of the accounts, Manville had to die, and Seville ascend to power. The problem was properly finessing Manville's death, while at the same time keeping Edgar Mitchell at bay. Chun needed Grafton to assure United States recognition of the Seville regime. With Roland James as an emissary, Grafton was able to fashion an understanding. What happened after Seville became president was Chun's problem, 
and it was agreed that nothing more was required of Grafton. The French-style golden-white phone rang. Grafton crossed the room and swept the receiver to his ear. Grafton. Craig, Cam Pritchett. Cam, tell me you have good news. I think we're on to something, Craig. We're almost certain that Peters linked up with Garrison and Bruce Keaton two days ago. We're about to get information from New York. I think we have them. Keaton has been making too many inquiries through his contacts. Excellent. Get them out of the way, Cam. What about Bruce Keaton? Bruce knows the rules. He's a liability now. I'm sure he knows that. Call me when you've stabilized the situation. I will. Craig. What is it, Cam? Lake Shar is blue in the summertime. Grafton held the phone tightly. Yes, it is. Are you the only one who thinks so? Let's hope the waters will remain calm and blue. Craig, if you go out on the lake, and it's really none of my business to tell you about sailing, you go out with the men. I really don't think the woman should invade that domain. Really? asked Grafton. Sailing is a man's sport. With a man, you can give definite orders, and you know where he stands. A woman is too busy taking in the incremental sights along the shore. I'll be taking a vacation. Lake Shire is a busy place in the summertime. Vacations are enticing. Other people get envious, said Pritchard. Isn't envy a mortal sin? I guess it depends. Listen, enough travel talk. I'll call you when we wrap up the operation. It's night here, so I'll say good night, Craig. Good night, Cam. Collins had to die. He turned on the TV set. All the channels carried the ceremony at the palace and now showed more troops marching by the reviewing stand. Grafton scanned the crowd. Collins sat next to Seville and nameless dignitaries. She wore a stunning red velvet dress and a matching hat, as if she were first lady of the land. Beneath her elegant exterior was a clever, potentially deadly woman. Her demeanor at Seville's residence and sleeping with Grafton was a ploy. Once they had both Mbutu and Manville dead, she would do whatever incremental told her. As the instrument of Grafton's death, she could divert the Swiss money to other sources. He could maintain the status quo by keeping the two million and forgetting the Swiss accounts, complicating the real estate transaction, but that would also force him to find other income as the years went on in obscurity. Yet, if he went gunning for Collins, he would reveal his hand to incremental oil. Cam Pritchard, even if he knew all the details, might be drawn in. The fact that he talked to Grafton in such vague terms about the plot and pointed the finger at Collins's connections to incremental oil signaled strongly that no one else in the agency knew about it. Cam might want something else in return. Grafton pushed his forehead into his bunched fist and closed his eyes. He was tempted to leave the country now. Everything had to be neatly balanced, but the game was now too complicated. He had done this kind of thing for 24 years. It was merely a matter of reasoning it through, knowing the proper decision, and implementing his course. Green Haze, Chapter 39 Garrison was skunking Sam Peters at Monopoly. After one hour and 55 minutes, he had the red hotels on every major property past Atlantic Ave. 
Sam had a laughable house assortment on St. Charles Estates in Virginia, as well as the railroads. Garrison gloated across the kitchen table. Sam lifted the dice into his hands, but Nina stopped him, even though she thought the contest was over. Garrison waved his brightly colored bankroll in Sam's face. Don't bother, Sam. Sam's teeth protruded from his beard. Garrison, if you think I'm just going to give up and hand over the board to you. Yeah, well, that's exactly what I think you're going to do. Sam held the dice in his hand as if he were going to throw them. His hesitation upset Garrison all the more. As far as he was concerned, the game was over. You have to get a two in order to land on that damn railroad. You get a three or a five and you're dead. And you don't have two grand to pay me for boardwalk. Sam grinned and rolled the dice as Keaton came in the front door. Garrison was livid when Sam rolled a six and advanced to go. Two hundred, Roy. You lucked out. You did. Bruce, he lucked out. Keaton looked tired and tried to smile. Roy, uh, can I talk to you for a second? Sure. He counted out $200 bills to Sam and then pointed at him as he looked at Nina. He lucked out. Sam likes to squeak by. Garrison rose and walked over to Keaton. What's up, Bruce? I met with my old friend. I thought you'd bring him in. What are we, chop liver? Keaton didn't laugh. He doesn't want to see you. This is very serious now. Grafton's people know we're in New York. Have your people get us out of here. I'm surprised you haven't figured it out. Maybe you don't want to figure it out. Figure what out, Bruce? Once we left the beach house, my people, they were coming. All expression drained from Garrison's face. You're kidding me. I wish I was. There's a massive manhunt on for all of us. If we're going to pressure Grafton, we sure as hell better do it now. My friend will have a jet at the airport well outside the city within the hour. We're out of here right now. No argument here. Garrison's face shriveled and he shook his head. You didn't have to save my tail. I like you, Roy. Try again. We were and still are marked liabilities. Our only hope right now is to get to Grafton and blackmail him. But we're dealing with a very sophisticated individual. Everybody's vulnerable, Bruce. Even Grafton. Keaton hurried outside to the car. Garrison left the unfinished Monopoly game on the table. He pointed at Sam. Don't worry, Sam. I'll give you another chance once we get on the plane. I need another chance. What a wipeout. Nina walked quickly from the bedroom. I'm ready. Okay, let's go. Garrison opened the hallway door, but he heard some commotion below. A clear voice called out. Upstairs! Garrison pushed them back inside the apartment. What happened? yelled Nina. Garrison closed the door. Someone's in the building. She put her hands to her mouth. He popped the open window and looked into the street. A rusted metal ladder jutted from the corner of the building. He quickly motioned them out of the room. Down here. What about Keaton? yelled Sam. He and Nina followed Garrison to the next window. Never mind, Keaton. He pushed up the window. You first, Sam. Sam crawled outside and Garrison quickly helped Nina onto the ladder. He was about to put his foot through the opening when he heard people bounding up the hall. Somebody kicked open the front door. It was too late to escape now. He shut the window to protect the Peters and dove behind the sofa and then slid across the rug. The door crashed against the wall. Garrison watched new white sneakers and jeans move by the sofa into the bedroom. 
He hoped Nina and Sam were not thrown into the crossfire, but where was Keaton? I don't see him. I don't see him, yelled the guy in the apartment. Well, they can't be that far away, said another voice in the hall. When they were back in the hall, Garrison moved on his belly toward the window. He peered over the casing. Four sedans and more men were in the square ahead, but he did not see Sam, Nina, or Keaton. He stood and ran toward the hall. It was a gamble going down those stairs. From the staircase window, more unmarked cars were parked across the street, and one man ran around with a shortwave radio in his hand. Several hundred yards down the road, Keaton's yellow station wagon was partially hidden in a donut shop parking lot. Maybe he had already picked up Sam and Nina. Garrison moved softly down the steps, but feared someone would spring out at any time. His fingertips traced the thin wood wallboards as he tiptoed by the second floor's open door. Someone came up the stairs and he heard the walkie-talkie. Then he darted into the vacant apartment, but he needed to get outside and run to the donut shop. Garrison ran along the apartment's front windows. They had cordoned off the street, but Keaton's car was still next to the donut shop. Going down that side ladder was impossible from this apartment. Without thinking, he pushed up the window and he leaped through the air. He crunched the top of a parked van, slid down the windshield and hood, and scraped his hands against the asphalt. Recovering, he sprinted down the sidewalk, his hands stinging. More gunfire sent him into a head-first dive off the sidewalk. He rolled toward the building. Bricks chipped apart above him as he scrambled into a jeweler's shop. The old man behind the counter ran to the door. I heard shooting! Get me out front, now! This way, I don't want to die. Light shone through the door at the end of a dim corridor. The other street was visible as he raced forward, pulled open the door, and looked to his right. He was about a hundred yards from the stakeout. Squeezing outside and ducking down, he rushed along the building and toward the donut shop, but the yellow station wagon was gone. Damn. Delay was deadly, and Garrison barreled toward an adjacent gas station. He quickly moved inside to survey the situation saw a phone on the wall near the garage. A mechanic popped off lug nuts with a compression hose. He frantically punched in Keaton's phone number. The line rang and connected, but Keaton did not answer. I'm in the gas station. He slammed down the receiver. Some of the employees looked back toward the apartment. He moved beyond the counter where people were signing their gas slips and stepped outside. Along the street, Keaton's car slowly pulled out of a school entrance near a playground. He waited until Keaton turned into the gas station. Then he casually walked outside. Back toward the apartment, cars blocked the road now and two men had guns pointed at the jewelry store owner. Garrison opened the wagon door. Where's Sam and Nina? Keaton drove past the other car at the pumps and slowly left the station. I thought they were with you. Keaton drove like an old lady, gradually moving away from the station in the apartment block. Then he accelerated slowly. Garrison looked through the dirty rear window. Bruce, you just can't leave them back there. What the hell are we going to do? Go back there. We go back there and we're dead. The car moved quickly through traffic now. Bruce! Keaton said nothing as Garrison pleaded. Is that what they teach you at cop school, Bruce? Save your own ass? Leave Sam and Nina out there for target practice? Keaton ran the first red light and banked a left skirting the oncoming traffic. Garrison fearfully looked in the mirror as they edged toward the freeway. Keaton passed a slow-moving truck and then shot up the ramp. Garrison leaned forward in the seat. 
They didn't deserve to be killed. Well, you don't know that. Cut the bullshit. How the hell are we ever going to fly out anyways? They have the radar, military surveillance. We'll get out. He pushed the station wagon engine hard enough to shake the car. Listen, Roy, the other guy in the picture. I don't give a goddamn about the other guy. What is it with you people? All part of the job, is it? He's Ronald Tillman. He's associated with what you might call a criminal element. Garrison clenched his fists and stared at the city buildings flying by his window. So what? Tillman is in high finance. People who can send money whizzing around the globe and nobody knows about it. The money from the drug company was going to the rebels in Pangea. Millions around Congress and the administration. This is a major operation. And if it gets out, there'll be implications worldwide. That's why they hung me out to dry. Like you did, Sam and Nina. Shut up, Roy. What should I have done? Tell me, you got all the answers. Garrison shook his head and closed his eyes. An odd silence lingered as they headed north in the warm May air. Trees blossomed green and a sweet fragrance blew off the river, but his thoughts were consumed with Sam and Nina. It was not Keaton's fault. I'm sorry, Bruce. Before Keaton could speak, the car lurched and the engine whined. We've got problems. Two sedans wove through traffic behind the station wagon. I thought we'd beat them. So did I. Keaton swerved and the station wagon's tires screeched as he bumped a slow-moving compact and then careened down the off-ramp. When he reached the street below, he flew past the stop sign, cut through the side traffic as he accelerated. Horns blew and cars spread out like sand in a windstorm as he skidded up the southbound ramp. Somehow they moved south, back toward the city. He veered into the fast lane at 80 miles an hour. Garrison clutched the front seat, half-closing his eyes as the New York City skyline approached again, and he wondered if they'd get away. Keaton left the highway, slowed and merged with the street traffic a few moments later. Along the river, he pulled next to a black Oldsmobile parked along the street and stopped abruptly. Garrison trailed Keaton out of the station wagon to the black sedan. Keaton had the keys on his ring and he opened the doors. The Oldsmobile had tinted windows and air conditioning. His friend casually put on some classical music and coolly started back to the highway. Garrison closed his eyes and leaned back in the seat. When they were out of the city, Keaton nudged him. Listen to what I am going to tell you. The bright sun hit his eyes. Everything I know is now on a new website along with the bridge photos. It's not a registered domain. V-3970-A95. Doesn't sound like a regular address. Nobody can find it on the search engine. You have to know those numbers and letters. All in caps. Listen, people I know will release that information on my say-so or if I am killed. The whole Prescott pharmaceutical thing will come out. Payments laundered through the banks to the Pangean rebels will come out. We're working on another angle. There's some kind of Chinese influence in this thing, and we don't know exactly what. So if they get us or you, Keaton pulled a card from his pocket. The phone numbers of his contacts from around the country were written in red ink. I'm going to arrange it so my people will not release anything until they hear from us. Gives us the edge. Maybe if we aren't shot first, after that chase in the station wagon, I'm having concerns. 
He looked ahead and checked the glove compartment map. Then he looked up. Roy, I made the best decision I could. I didn't want to leave them back there. I know that. I know that, Bruce. He's smarter than I gave him credit for. The bugger had the backup car and he knows how to make all the right moves. Or you'd be dead right back there on the sidewalk, Roy. He's got the poison pill on the website. Either Grafton yields or it all breaks open. Good man, Bruce Keaton. Less than an hour later, Keaton left the highway and traveled onto a state road. The rural airport consisted of a rounded green hangar and several concrete runways with no terminal tower. At the end of the field was a sleek blue and white jet capable of getting them out of the country quickly. Keaton left the car near a maintenance garage and was out first. Garrison marched behind them to a payphone inside the hangar. Keaton placed a call, lasting less than a minute, as if he were changing a will, letting somebody know that Garrison was aware of the website number. When he hung up the phone, Keaton gave him a wink, half-smile, and headed for the counter. Garrison gazed across the runway toward the jet, but he was still thinking about the Peters. How the hell is this hotshot pilot going to leave the U.S. without lighting up every air traffic controller screen on the East Coast? What about the damn military radar? Let's go, said Keaton, putting some papers in his pocket. They went through the glass doors and started along the concrete. Three hundred yards away, the jet side hatch opened and a ramp extended to the cement. Two guys in brightly colored jogging suits and automatic weapons stood in the shadows behind an open door. Garrison looked at Keaton. Your guys, I hope. Keaton nodded and motioned them up the stairs. He moved inside, still thinking of Sam and Nina, as he stared at the metal machine gun barrels. The extensive cabin had an overhead TV monitor, counter, and about ten seats. Keaton seated him next to the window. Two pilots up front threw switches as the engines roared. Relax, or try to. We'll be in the air for some time. Once we get over the ocean, we'll eat. The outside hatch was secured with great alacrity as the two men with automatic weapons positioned themselves near the outside windows. Sentry duty. How the hell are you going to pull this off, Bruce? You had a cozy job and you could have cruised into retirement. There's something else, Bruce, buddy. He buckled his seatbelt as the jet immediately moved forward. Keaton looked out the window once and casually took out his legal pad as if he were on a simple business trip. Amidst a barrage of radio signals from the cabin, the jet was at the end of a long runway five minutes later. Garrison was thrown back against the seat as they shot forward, the jet reaching a high velocity very quickly, and they angled upward into the blue sky. Keaton must have called in old favors to divert this flight to Pangea. Bruce, how does one just drop in on Pangea? There must be worldwide intelligence resources that will probably be after us. Keaton shook his head from the forward seat, facing the pilots as he spoke. We're supposed to be flying to the Canary Islands and eventually land offshore from Pangaea. Garrison stared at Keaton's dry, sandy hair, knowing that the agent had gotten himself boxed in. Outside the window, the blue ocean expanse moved like a continuous conveyor below them. Garrison exhaled slowly and thought about Sam and Nina. It might have been possible for them to survive, but not for long. Somehow he felt responsible, or maybe he could have prevented what happened. Events and the mounting Pangean pressure was quickly overshadowing the loss. As a cynical, middle-aged reporter, he doubted whether an individual like Craig Grafton, 
no matter how much they had on him, would willingly be blackmailed. Green Haze, Chapter 40 He awoke to the low hum of the mighty jet engines above the Atlantic. A brightly colored cable news satellite signal illuminated the darkness. Keaton, his tie loosened in his blazer, draped across one of the empty seats, leaned on the counter, under the monitor. Roy! Manville, the rebel leader! He's dead! Garrison looked at the news report and then back at Keaton. Where does that leave our Mr. Grafton? Unknown! Keaton turned toward a live shot, interrupted by a faltering transmission. Two correspondents were stationed in a hotel window, overlooking quiet, candlelit streets below. How convenient, said Garrison, studying the screen. I don't understand. They funded the rebels to victory, then why would they kill Manville? Obviously, something else is afoot. Keaton stood up. I still have every intention of blackmailing Grafton. Garrison leaned forward in the seat. Bruce, while I admire your cunning, I keep thinking... Can we really compete with Grafton? I don't know. Remember that unregistered website has everything you had on Prescott. And I've let it be known through my contacts that everything will be released if I'm killed. I check in at this number every 72 hours. Handed one of the three cards to Garrison. It was a San Francisco number along with the website numbers and letters. Should I memorize this? Exactly. Yes, you are my backup. If anything happens to me, you'll have to check in. I don't want Grafton's people to trace the number and kill my contacts. But once Grafton is aware we have the pictures and that we have the background of the operation, I'm betting he won't kill us. He can't kill us because everything will come out. Not only will that ruin him, but it will expose a major scandal. Let's hope I'm right. Garrison smiled. I hope you are right. The reporters in Argos tried to link into the government-run radio station. General Seville was about to address the nation. Back in the United States, someone produced a graphic on the screen, a picture of Seville and his green military fatigues superimposed over a colorful Pangean map. Incredible how these things work, said Keaton. You mean the facade? Yeah, what really happens behind the scenes like a ghost rider? The reporter clutching a microphone in his earpiece simultaneously, spoke to his colleagues. I believe I'm listening to General Seville, formerly Chief General and Strategist for the late President Mbutu, who is now broadcasting to the nation, announcing... He continued to listen in his earpiece. Announcing that he is firmly in control of this nation's capital and the countryside. He has confirmed that, incredibly, the new President Manville is dead. The Mbutu regime, of course, has been accused of numerous human rights abuses, but the general has managed to stay clear of that record and is liked by both his countrymen and the United States. Garrison furrowed his brow. Why would the rebels take in a guy so closely linked with Mbutu? They need stability in civil office, that. Keaton tapped his fingers on the counter. Grafton must be in on this. Nothing happens here without his say-so. I don't understand this. You don't have to. Keaton yawned. It's late. Let's get some shut-eye. No complaint from me. The plane banked in the morning sun.
a small island, maybe 15 miles long and half as wide, with a single concrete runway, was set alone in the blue-green ocean, away from the fuzzy mainland to the east. Keaton was with the pilot as they wafted down and glided slowly toward the island runway. Garrison did not share Keaton's confidence. How could Grafton and his people allow a website to hold them hostage? Yet he acknowledged the possibility of containing the scandal within the agency, around Congress and the administration. Maybe Keaton could hold Grafton at bay. Where are we, Bruce? Buckle up, Roy. We're off the coast of Pangaea. Keaton moved to his seat as the aircraft continued the gradual descent. Keep thinking of the Peter's little baby, Jason. I'd like to put a gun to this guy Grafton's head. Keaton nodded. I agree, but you'll have to think that one through. Thinking it through is the only way. The jet moved smoothly as if it were on a track linked to the concrete runway ahead. Garrison stared out the window as the mainland sunk away and the ground lifted up to meet the plane. Faded orange VN exited the two-story silver terminal as the jet converged on the runway. The engines roared as they moved past the woods in the distant terminal and taxied down the far end. Garrison knew he was off the coast of Africa, near the heart of the Green Haze operation set up by Grafton and the others. So much had happened since he had decided to follow up on Mrs. Campbell's lead. He thought of the Campbells, Richard, Sam, and Nina Peters, and all the VED victims of this operation. Welcome to Pangea. Keaton, standing, looked rested despite his wrinkled shirt. Outside, temperature is 81. The skies are clear. Another day, another president. The van stopped as the jet rolled back. Craig Grafton and his merry men take over a sovereign country, said Garrison, all funded by your friendly VED outbreaks around the globe. Garrison nodded as Keaton said something to the pilots and then turned to Garrison. Who the hell would believe it? Keaton walked stiffly and ground his teeth. What if Grafton doesn't capitulate? Keaton turned with his hand on the hatchway lever. He has no damn choice. If he doesn't fold, Roy, we're all dead. He won't waste any time. You want to go back and run for the rest of your unnatural life? Garrison crossed the jet cabin with his hands in his pants pocket. He stared into Keaton's solid eyes. No, I don't. Keaton nodded and popped open the stairway. The warm, humid air flowed into the cabin. As Garrison's eyes adjusted to the bright sun outside, Keaton scurried down the stairs. A tall man with straight, sandy brown hair and green combat fatigues Listen carefully as Keaton became animated. He nodded as the man uttered a few sentences. Then he turned and trotted back up the hatchway stairs. One of our tour guides, asked Garrison. This guy was a part of Green Haze, the Pangea takeover. I have to reiterate, we're not talking about amateurs here who just are going to throw up their hands because you have a website. There's more, Roy. What do you mean? The British guy outside wants money. He claims he has more on Grafton. Personal stuff, but he wants a piece of the action. If he does have personal stuff, then maybe we'll be able to use that on the site also. Personal stuff? Grafton will just kill us. I'm counting on him being more reasonable than that. Sure as hell hope you're right. The acne-scarred British guy smiled at Garrison. He had a chipped front tooth and called himself Nate. Garrison impulsively sized him up as an opportunist and a phony. 
As the van raced across the runway, Nate pontificated about the struggle in Pangaea as if he had personally led the troops. They were driven to cottages a few hundred yards away from the terminal. Outside, several black men ran out as the van stopped. Manville is dead, shouted one of them. We know that, said Keaton as he leaped from the van. General Seville has just announced he will lead the country. The British soldier did not appear rattled. Seville was in Butus General, well-liked. Told you there was more, come with me. He led them outside into a third cottage with a red aluminum roof. He shut the door and stood vigilant near the window. Listen, having Seville in place is very beneficial to Grafton. Grafton is sold out. Sold out big time. It involves huge amounts of money. Do you have proof of this? asked Garrison. Nate stared at him for a second, his lips parted, but then he turned to Keaton. All I want is a portion of what Grafton is getting. Keaton nodded. Agreed, agreed. What the hell's going on? Nate looked out the window again and then waved them over. Grafton made a deal with the bloody Chinese. He must know now the importance of that oil offshore. Mbutu is charging everyone high tariffs and reaping in the profits. That's why they overthrew him. The surprise is the Chinese wanted the oil action. Seville is their man. Grafton either had Manville killed or he did it himself after he set up Manville to embrace Seville. So Seville has the dead Manville's blessing. How much money is involved here? asked Keaton. Twenty-five mil. Garrison looked at Keaton. A million? To Grafton? That's squat. The oil is worth billions, said Nate. How much do you want? Fifteen. Keaton walked within inches of his face. I will get you a hundred thousand to keep your mouth shut. I'll take it, said Nate, and he checked the window again. Here's what we have to do. A small turbo prop will fly us to the mainland, but far enough away from Argos. I've arranged transportation back to the capital. I will contact Grafton before that time. Who else knows about Grafton's arrangement? <laughs> the Chinese, of course. He shook his head. But that's it. No American knows this that I'm aware of. Its scope is very limited. Well, we have to worry about the Chinese double-crossing Grafton, said Keaton. Oh, no, they need to keep Grafton to smooth this thing over with the U.S. That's the deal. Once the U.S. approves, Grafton will disappear, believe me. We have to move quickly. Twenty-five million dollars. If you're going to sell out, you might as well do it big. This guy will be long gone and may not care about the scandal being exposed or even his own espionage activities. Garrison hit Keaton's arm. Bruce, if you're going to get 25 mil and your agency's activities are going to come out, why would you care about what we might expose? Good point. Nate spoke in a hushed voice. Timing is everything, and old Grafton is mighty cagey. Keaton thought for a few seconds, rubbing his thumb along his lower lip. I need to get to Grafton as soon as we reach Argos and make him call off his pit bulls back home. Don't be naive, Bruce, said Garrison. He'll tell us anything to pacify us, and then we're dead. No, I think we've got him. 
I have to get this Chinese stuff up on the website. About 200 yards from the hangar, a dirty white propeller-driven plane buzzed down the runway. It looked similar to a city commuter plane back in any United States airport. The propellers hung down from a maroon trim wing, and Garrison counted 12 windows. As the plane rolled closer, two pilots were visible inside the cockpit. Nate turned toward them, his smile now far removed, and he spoke more like an instructor at a military academy. This flight will take 35 minutes. We don't have any illusions. We're dealing with a number of variables here. He'll have Grafton himself, top-notch and daring. You'll have the Chinese who are not in the habit of taking prisoners. You'll have Seville and the old Manville alliances, Mbutu's people, and defense security, and other interests. What other interests? asked Keaton. Woman named Marva Collins. I don't know what her angle is, but watch out for her. As I told you, this is all very tricky. Nate produced a phony chuckle and headed outside. Garrison followed him and Keaton into the hot sun. I don't see us ever making it back home, Bruce. Will you stop, Roy? If we're going to be killed, we're going to be killed. I won't die listening to you tell me how bad things are. Garrison pretended to zip his mouth. The propeller plane had stopped less than 100 feet from the cottage. They marched with Nate across the grass and up a narrow aluminum ramp. The plane's interior was dusty and crammed with narrow aisle seats. Nate went up with the pilots as Garrison buckled his belt and turned toward the scratched plastic window. Grafton not only had the balls to go around Congress and the President, but now he was subverting his own agency's mission and aligning himself with the Chinese. And Keaton was going to take this guy on? After a rough takeoff through shifting air currents, the plane was airborne a few minutes later and traveled at a much lower altitude than the jet. Ripples formed long squiggle patterns across the silver-blue ocean below. Ahead, as the engines vibrated through the cabin, Pangean landscape, so distant from home, appeared through the spinning propellers. It was not even a matter of getting his life back. He wanted to make Grafton pay for Richard's death and all the other atrocities. Green Haze, Chapter 41 By late afternoon, they rumbled down an overgrown dirt jungle road in a 1967 Silver Chrysler. The gas tank gauge was stuck on empty, but they were assured by Nate that the tank was filled and the capital city was less than two hours away. Hotel accommodations were reserved away from the city. Back at the mainland landing strip, Nate, calling himself Roland James, spoke directly with Grafton about unrelated matters and requested a meeting, which was promptly rejected. Garrison wondered whether Grafton suspected anything or was tipped off. Nate opted not to mention the website, but instead merely said he had called Grafton the next day. Keaton agreed with that strategy because it didn't allow Grafton any defensive time. They all concurred that the website threat must be immediate. Grafton occupied Garrison's thoughts as they passed through a dense thicket along the dirt road. He focused on the photograph in Grafton's gray hair and wire-rimmed glasses atop the St. John's River Bridge. Just killing Grafton would soothe his soul but accomplish nothing. Grafton's people would still chase him and Keaton. As the shadows grew deep and a poverty-laden town sprung up in the wilderness, he realized they had to persevere 
but they would need phenomenal luck. A quick volley of shots shook the half-asleep garrison, and he sat up quickly. Ahead, five or six soldiers blocked the road. Again, they fired shots into the sky. Who are these clowns? asked Keaton. Nate slowed the car and leaned toward the driver's side window. Mbuto loyalists, let me handle this. The soldiers surrounded the car and stuck their gun barrels through the open windows. One of them shouted something inaudible. Garrison thought they were drunk. Nate positioned his head over the gun barrel so it stuck into his chest. Do you know who the hell I am? The soldier looked perplexed. No. Nate threw his credentials out the window. The man bent over and grasped the small packet in his hand. He nodded his head and showed the documents to the other men. They handed the papers back to Nate. His voice deepened and he spoke in broken English. Tell me, Mr. James, why are you riding around the backwaters with Americans? Why? These people are loyal to General Seville and have been checking the villages for problems. He thrust the gun forward and Nate winced. What problems? You listen to me, you son of a bitch. I slowed here because you were blocking the road. You can kill us and have every American in this country and the arriving troops after your ass. Get your guns out of the car and go. The guns were still thrust in the backseat windows. One word from this guy and the men would commence firing. Someone shouted out an order and the guns were retracted simultaneously. The soldier nearest Nate waved them through. Nate raised the dust as he accelerated down the isolated road. Garrison looked out the rear window as the soldiers fired into the sky again. Nate squinted into the rearview mirror. The guy has no balls. Well, that's okay, said Garrison as he turned away from the back window. Keaton, his arm resting on the passenger side open window, looked up at Nate. You're damn lucky, Mr. James. Nate kept driving, took a turn through a village and onto a paved road. They moved faster now, crossing a green girder bridge over fast-moving, muddy water. On the far side was a highway cutting through forested hills. Nate left the main road and traveled up a bridge embankment to a wider road. He moved the car quickly up a long, red clay hill. Skyscrapers less than 15 miles away popped over the crest, and an expansive, sloping plain spread across the sunlit ocean to the west. A few oil platforms blazed offshore, and a black cloud dissipated downwind. Surrounding the road were dilapidated houses, tents, and huts extending down to newer buildings. Across the bay you can see the culprit, Nate pointed to the oil wells, standing like trophies silhouetted against the hazy vermilion sky. Without oil, there'd be no revolution, no vying for power. They're all like wild dogs around raw meat. No difference. You, me, all of them. More cars passed them now, a few military vehicles and some trucks. A large refinery with huge white tanks now shaded the orange sunset farther down along the shore. Black and red tankers lay anchored offshore. Near the inner city, with the highway bent away from the sea, Nate moved onto the tightly packed streets. People were dressed in brightly colored but soiled and worn garb, and the cars were vintage. Nate edged around the traffic and toured one of the taller buildings. He slowed at a parking garage ahead and pulled onto the sidewalk. You entered through the garage. He took out a bright chrome room key, stamped 605. 
Head right up to the room and stay there. Give me 15 minutes. Keaton nodded and looked Garrison in the eye. Then he opened the door and stepped onto the busy sidewalk. Garrison followed, and almost immediately, Nate pulled away and blended into traffic. Can we trust him, Bruce? Keaton smiled, not even answering the question. They started down the sidewalk and headed directly for the parking garage entrance. Loud buses spewed forth heavy exhaust, and combined with the older cars lacking mufflers, produced an ear-deafening racket. Garrison glanced forward, catching a glimpse of the silver Chrysler far ahead in the traffic jam. Then he looked up directly at the hotel facade toward the darkening sky. Grafton was somewhere in this city, aware of Nate's presence in Argos, but hopefully unaware that Garrison and Keaton were with him. Half a mile away, light burst across the traffic. It's a bomb. A bomb. Nate's gone. They bombed the car. As Keaton turned, Garrison grabbed his arm. They blew up the car, Bruce. Keaton clamped his teeth together as he spoke. Inside, Roy, inside. Garrison leaped through the concrete doorway. A bright orange glow within the distant traffic sent people scattering. An opaque smoke leaked up the street canyon. Keaton pulled him into a stairwell. They ran up the urine-laden stairs and stumbled into the lobby. A woman with long, blonde hair watched them move forward. The bomb blast confusion was just beginning to impact the lobby as people ran to phones in the front desk, but Keaton led Garrison up the hotel stairs. They climbed six floors and entered a white-painted corridor with a green flowery rug. Keaton scanned the room numbers and motioned them left. Near the end window, he stopped and thrust the key into the adjacent room door. Fire hoses shot powerful bursts skyward and smoke spread thick along the street. Once again, he had escaped death. Had the soldiers or someone else hired by Craig Grafton placed something under that car? Roy! Keaton waved him away from the window. Who do you think did it? He shook his head. We need to find Grafton quickly. Keaton checked the door lock and swung the chain. Then he lifted the phone. Our luck is running out, Bruce. We're going to have to kill him. Easier said than done, said Keaton. Back at the window, ambulances and military vehicles pushed through the congested East African city. Keaton tried to call the American embassy and covered the receiver. We killed Grafton, and I question whether we have the means to do that. We still have to deal with the situation. Garrison leaned against the window. Look what he just did. I understand that, Roy. Keaton pinched his brow and closed his eyes. His mind, programmed from years of training and field experience, clicked flawlessly. No, we have to put Grafton in a position where he protects us against his own agency, where they can't do anything because we have the goods on him. We need him alive. I say just kill him. Nothing would give me greater pleasure than knocking off the bastard. You know that. And you know what he did to my brother. Keaton uncovered the receiver. You tell Mr. Grafton that Bruce Keaton and Roy Garrison are alive and have information from Mr. Grafton. Keaton listened and then waited. He knows who we are. What did they say? They're trying to track him down, but want to know who the hell I am. Garrison repeated the website designation in his mind and then checked the number. He looked at his watch. It was still a 48-hour window before they had to call Keaton's contacts and assure them that they were still alive. 
No, I won't tell you where I am, said Keaton. I will call back in 15 minutes. Have Grafton connected. He lowered the phone. Grafton doesn't have to do anything. We can't compete with this guy. I think the whole thing... Keaton was still holding the receiver on the phone. Roy, you're in a world that doesn't work like the real world. It's a semantic world. Grafton could not have known we had the website information. He wouldn't have placed the bomb, but Grafton did know we were in that car. Unbelievable. Garrison turned back to the street below. He still wanted to kill Grafton himself, even if it meant blowing apart this checkmated scenario they were setting up. We're sitting ducks for Grafton. Roy, knock it off! His only option is the status quo. Keaton made one long-distance call to the United States and in 15 minutes summarized Keaton's dealings with the Chinese. Then they waited in hotel room 605. About a half an hour later, the phone's distinctive doorbell ring echoed throughout the room. Garrison lay sprawled across the bed as Keaton leaped to his feet and grabbed the receiver. The embassy told him Grafton was standing by on another line. Keaton's stomach jolted. Craig, I think you know why I'm here. I understand a good portion of it. Not all of it, Craig. Make sure this line is free. It is, said Grafton, but Keaton still did not believe him. For your protection. A pause lasted about five seconds. Grafton must have been sorting it through his mind. The line went dead and Keaton called the front desk immediately. He requested they dial the number Grafton had just given him. His heart pounded when the line rang. What do you know, Bruce? I have Garrison with me. Interesting. This is very simple, Craig. I have people back in the U.S. who are expecting a check-in call from one of us every 72 hours. If they don't get that call, information on a confidential website will be released to three sources. A Congressional Oversight Committee, a well-placed national security aide in the administration, and the media will be blitzed. His voice displayed no emotion. What do you have? Pictures on the St. Augustine Bridge. Those pictures will show you conferring with Bill Schultz from Prescott Pharmaceuticals and Warren Tillman from Overseas Financial. We know about green haze and the VED outbreaks. And we know what you guys did to raise money for the rebels here in Pangaea. Specify. I thought I just did. You brought the VED around the world. We have it all documented, Craig. The money was laundered for many purposes, primarily being this war effort. For a few seconds, he said nothing. What do you want? Where can we meet? We don't need to meet. You tell us right now. We... No, there is no need to meet. What do you want? Money? You know about the Chinese, Craig. This time the silence lasted much longer. You're bluffing. It's all on the site. $25 million to kill Manville and put Seville in place. The line hissed and crackled during the next pause. You remain here and facilitate the Chinese interests, allowing them to gain a sphere of influence over the oil industry. Can't kill us, Craig. You have to deal with us. Keaton heard shuffling and outside traffic. Grafton was moving again. 
He heard horns blowing and engines whining. Three hours. The refineries. Check with the guard shack. The line clicked. Grafton! Wait! Grafton! Keaton banged the phone. Grafton! What did he say? yelled Garrison. Keaton slowly set down the receiver. He wants us out at the refineries in three hours. It's a setup, said Garrison. Why three hours? He's trying to find us. Has to be a setup. You told him what we have. Damn, I don't trust him. It's very clever. Keaton pressed his lips, walked to the window, and stared outside. We have to go out there, Bruce. I know that. I'm trying to think. If I were Grafton, I'd keep coming back to the fact that he can't kill us, Roy. If he kills us, the information comes out. We have him, yet... What do you think? Garrison moved closer to his old friend. Maybe. Keaton nodded, but looked troubled in the outside light. This guy isn't just a superb player, Roy. He's above the game. Green Haze, Chapter 42 It was an older taxi with cold vinyl seats. Garrison needed a cigarette. The taxi blended into traffic. All the remnants of the car bombing was cleared, and the cavalcade of vehicles resumed its erratic flow. Garrison's clenched fist supported his half-shaven face. His eyes stung and his heart periodically thumped in anticipation. He kept telling himself that the dead were only revived with justice. As the taxi's exhaust filled the air, he constantly pictured the omnipotent Craig Grafton. He'll find a way around the site. Keaton shook his head. Won't happen. It's not registered anywhere. Garrison peered at the Orwell's flames spewing into the night sky and reflecting across the dark water. The taxi picked up speed south of the city, and the tension in his bones now demanded he confront Grafton. Death was preferable to living in perpetual anticipation. He leaned back in his seat, closed his eyes, and clamped his jaw. He would never forget the smallest detail if he managed to survive the night. The rumble of the taxi's diesel engine and the little black driver with white luminous eyes and a name tag marked Abdul Kazal, 3rd Boulevard, Agos. In the darkness ahead along the boulevard, headlights shone onto the stragglers moving along the grass, few bicyclists and rogue soldiers. A tanker as high as a 10-story building and as long as a stadium was outlined in green and red lights and docked not too far south of the mammoth white storage tanks. More troops had been placed behind sandbags, rifles pointing outward as a reminder of the instability. Near the refinery, a long chain-link fence, topped with several layers of barbed wire, extended along the road. Garrison studied the brighter halogen lights along the tank's spiraling white ladders. Long industrial tubing and pipelines reached into the darkness, and more complex, twisted piping, silver-coated, formed an industrial mosaic. Power existed inside those pipes, a lustful aggrandizement rivaling any mine ever staked or any strategically placed land spit. It was what they fought for, and a part of everyone who coveted it. Keaton leaned forward and pointed. There's a checkpoint. The driver, his English broken, looked in the mirror. His bright teeth moved with every accentuated word. Do you need transportation back? Keaton shook his head and grinned. 
He glanced at Garrison and then back to the mirror. No, I'm sure that will be taken care of. The driver nodded and the dash panel's green blinker flashed and produced a hollow repeating sound as he pulled to the right. They whipped by dozens of rifle-toting soldiers. Some peered at the taxi while others walked nonchalantly and talked in the night. The taxi brakes squealed and they came to a slow stop at the fortified checkpoint. The men around this area were more alert and attuned to security. They opened the taxi doors before Keaton could pay the driver. A little black man in camouflaged clothes and a netted olive metal helmet thrust his M16 through the open taxi door. Both Keaton and the driver were pulled from the car. Garrison looked into the soldier's dark eyes. Out! He nodded and followed the gun barrel outside. Several more soldiers pushed him abruptly against the taxi and spread his legs. Now they had his wrist pinned. He thought he heard one of them either hit Keaton or the driver. The little soldier had his wallet and was checking his California license. Roy Garrison, California, USA. Correct. Garrison looked past the checkpoint and over the grid fence to the white tanks outlined in the blackness. His hide padded like an out-of-control wind-up toy. Ahead, out of the darkness, a shot man with neatly trimmed brown hair walked briskly through the gate, but his eyes were trained on Garrison. He waved his hand through the air. I'll take them. The soldier turned, somewhat befuddled, but he recognized the man and came to attention and then looked straight ahead. Garrison looked over his shoulder. The other soldiers were also at attention. It's an American, Roy. I know who they are, Mr. Keaton, if you'll come around the car. The American grabbed Garrison's wallet and threw it to him. Come with me. Keaton appeared to his right. They followed the American past more soldiers at attention through the gate and marched directly into the dimly lit area inside the refinery. Once they were about 50 yards from the main gate, the American stopped and faced him. I know about the website. I know about Grafton selling out to the Chinese. Who are you? That's not important. I want the website designation and the telephone numbers of your contact. You always make it a habit of listening to phone conversations? Asked Keaton. Irrelevant. I'll get the information whether I have to one way or the other. Where's Grafton? The designation now. Keaton squinted and shook his head as he scanned the tanks. If you heard my conversation with Grafton, you'll know what will happen if either Roy or myself does not check in. He looked at Keaton for several seconds and then at Garrison. Reading his thoughts proved impossible till he slid out a large handgun and placed it to Keaton's temple. Then he marched them both toward the tanks. The website, Garrison or your old friend dies. Do you want that on your mind? Don't listen to him, Roy. Think about Sam and Nina. Think about Richard. The American's eyes reflected a growing impatience. Yes, think about them. Your brother need not have been killed if you had minded your own business, Garrison. Garrison could feel his own anger surging as they neared the tanks. Who are you? You want to spend the rest of your life wondering whether you could have saved Keaton's life? The website, Roy. Don't do it, Roy. You have the advantage. You know you do. Forget about me. The American was befuddled by Garrison's indecision. Before he spoke again, a voice cut through the night air above. Put down the gun, Cam. The American gazed up at the catwalk. I'm the only one who knows, Craig. 
Garrison looked up and to his left. Grafton's combed-down gray hair was visible behind a long catwalk railing a hundred feet above him. There was a quick pop. Garrison turned as a louder rifle cracked echoed around the tanks. Keaton was face down in the dirt, and the American spread over his legs. His hair was now a mush of knotted strands, brain matter, and blood. Garrison moved toward the handgun. Grafton spoke clearly again. Leave it alone, Roy. You won't need it. Garrison, numb by death and carnage, bent over, squatted, and, and touched Keaton's brown blazer. Oh, Bruce! Bruce! He held his friend's shoulder and began to cry. Then he turned, wiping his eyes, still squatting, and looked up toward the figure in the catwalk's cold blue light. Is that what this is all about, Grafton? Anyone in your way gets killed? It's reality, Roy. Garrison stood. There will be justice. Justice is a byproduct. Sometimes it's there, sometimes it gets in the way. You're full of platitudes, aren't you? Garrison walked across the asphalt and toward the middle grid stairway. He climbed deliberately, each step against the metal, producing a low-pitched, popping vibration. His hand grasped the cold metal railing and rose quickly above the refinery. The rig flames were clear in the bay at this elevation, and he could smell the burning oil more distinctly. It was stuck in his sinus cavity like an incurable disease. He reached the upper level. Grafton, rifle to his side, stood motionless about fifty feet down the catwalk. Garrison inched his way to this powerful man who had formulated and executed the takeover of this country. Grafton had a very mellow voice. There was no need for Keaton to die. Cam was one of my people. He made an unfortunate choice. I had arranged for both of you to be flown back to the United States. Garrison took one step at a time, moving slowly closer. I will do the same for you, Roy. Your job is securely back in place. Everything will be the same. Garrison stopped about ten feet from Grafton. He looked at the weapon. Grafton hurled the weapon over the railing. I have demonstrated my good intentions. On the catwalk above, a woman with long blonde hair appeared in a black jumpsuit. Garrison recognized her as the woman standing in the hotel lobby, and she had an automatic weapon pointing downward. Drop the gun, Craig. Grafton smiled. You're getting nothing out of this, Marva. Not me. Quay, an incremental. If I did nothing, I would have nothing. If I kill you, I'll still have nothing. How much does he want? All of it. Grafton looked at Garrison. It's not for me to say. Mr. Garrison now has the upper hand. He calls the shots. She walked a few feet ahead and looked down at Garrison. If you cooperate, Mr. Garrison, I'll let you live. Garrison raised a gun and fired. Her gun bounced over the tinny catwalk and she snapped onto the rail. Grafton produced a weapon, unloaded it, riddling the jumpsuit with bullets, and her body flew mid-air past Garrison. Her blonde hair spread out like a parachute as she hit the ground with a distinctive smack. Grafton's gun smoked as he looked up. Garrison never broke his stare. You're not flying me back to the United States, Grafton. All of you. You all have your plans and your logistics with no regard for the cost. Grafton's wire-rimmed glasses reflected the refinery lights. For a moment, Garrison saw the bridge photo blow up clearly in his thoughts. He drifted to his last breakfast with Richard, 
and he pictured Sam Peters losing at Monopoly as his wife laughed heartily in the background. And he saw a younger Bruce Keaton walking down an L.A. street 15 years ago. Sooner or later, despite all your carefully laid plans, all of your circumventing of the rules and your almighty attitudes, there has to be a price to be paid. Green Haze. Epilogue. The island estate was crowded with cars. David had groomed the main house grounds. He worked on the island for 14 years and was hesitant about changing estates. He had been hired to tend the Arianas estate and had transformed the grounds into a botanical showplace. David, everything is perfect. His wife's auburn hair bounced up and down as they walked from the caretaker's house. Yeah, we worked our asses off, didn't we, Cassie? True. They reached the rear verandas. Several servants ushered them inside and got them drinks and brought them to a long food table below the ice sculptures. Feel out of place here, David. I almost wish we weren't invited. I'm sure Mr. Arianus doesn't know we're here, Cassie. An older man with crop gray hair, casually dressed in light clothing, walked around the table. How's the food? Oh, there's a lot of it here. Frankly, I'd be happy with hamburger and chips. David smiled. At least he had someone to talk to amidst the wealth and power. My sentiments exactly. Maybe some beer. The man smiled. He was tanned and rested. Now you're talking, David. You know me? Not directly. He bit into one of the spinach slices and made a face, then set the spinach back in the napkin. That's pretty bad. Do you work here? asked David. Oh, I guess you could say that. He turned to his right as a woman with long gray hair, maybe about his age, and a blonde man in his twenties, moved along the table. Ah, my wife. So you so you live here on the island? asked Cassie. I do. David and Cassie, this is my wife, Loretta. And Jason. David shook hands and turned to the older man. I think you and your wife have done a fantastic job here with the grounds. Well, we haven't formally met, said David. The man smiled and extended his hand. I'm Constantine Arianus. Pleasure to meet you. I have a confession. Even before I recorded this podcast, I had bantered the idea of backtracking Craig Grafton's career into a series of books. Having reviewed Green Haze again for this recording, I've made the decision that that series will begin later this year. Grafton, as a character for an author, is just too irresistible not to continue his agency saga, even if it's backtracked. Let's talk about the next podcast. I've seen the future as a time travel book, yes, but it brings history, especially with the 1939 World's Fair in New York City, into the book. It begins several hundred years in the future. The promise in 1939 leads to a darkened, morose future. I'm Robert P. Fitton, and I hope you've enjoyed Green Haze, and I will see you in the future next time. Good evening.
all of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittinbooks.com, or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.